in every country Trees. You know we can Work together and learn what we need To meet the challenge Traditional skills and modern techniques Whatever language you speak You have a world to offer Every day Climb with the ISA Welcome to the ISA's Science of Arboriculture podcast series. This is Tom Smiley, your host for Science of Arboriculture at the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory. This podcast series was developed by the International Society of Arboriculture to bring you the latest research-based information on tree care. We provide full-length educational talks by the world's top researchers, educators, and practitioners to keep you up to date with new developments in the field of arboriculture. Today's lecture is by John Goodfellow, who is the Principal Consultant at Biocompliance Consulting in Redmond, Washington. His talk is on branch failure risk mitigation and the determination of the critical fracture zone in branches. This lecture was originally presented at the Tree Biomechanics Symposium in Kent, Ohio in August 2010. Thanks. I'm, I'm going to follow on and uh, talk about branches, but I'm also going to give you a little background on how I got where I've, I've, got, I've arrived at. Um, and really, uh, I think the first thing you need to think about, if I can get this to go, is I'm talking about utility work, and much of the discussion you've heard today has been dealing with high-value trees where you'd be intimately involved on an individual tree basis, truly arboriculture. Um, and the way I think about utility work is more like forestry, managing uh, large populations of trees. And over my career, happily, I think that the industry's starting to wake up to the fact that we're managing biological systems that respond to different cultural practices. So when I began in the business some 30 years ago, it was all about tree trimming. And now we know we only do that at Christmas time. And uh, line clearance pruning is now the way we speak of it with uh, utility vegetation management. The notion there is that, in fact, it is a biological system. Whether it is a cover type or an individual plant, it responds to some sort of cultural practice that we impress on the plant or the system. And it's different than a philosophy that says control. Because the control approach the engineers used to use basically thought about, I'm going to get so much clearance, and that's good enough. With the management approach, we understand that we can actually manage for an outcome, and that outcome would be reliability. So being an inquisitive person, early in my career, as I drove around, I would look at trees in contact with wires and think, why wasn't that an outage? Or I'd look at trees that caused an outage, and I'd wonder, why did that one cause uh, the power to go out? So I began now about 15 years of work where I've uh, caused high-voltage faults in trees in a laboratory. I've done over 2,000 replications. And then um, the reason this is important is this was my fourth trip to Schallerville. The first two trips were to replicate my lab work in the field. So there are two beautiful trees down by that um, office, if you were on the site, uh, a pin oak and a silver maple, open-grown crown form. Um, they saw as many as 20,000 volts of current, and they look great today. Those tests were looking at um, the risk of a person coming into contact with a tree. So it would be a casual party on the ground, 
reaching out and touching the tree. Um, and that is called uh, touch potential. And that word potential doesn't mean likelihood. That's the voltage potential or the difference in voltage. Or it may be step. So what that is is the current flows down the tree and out into the soil. And if you are in two different places, you potentially are shunt and you can have current flowing through you. So the question was, how risky are electrical contacts for the person on the ground? And subsequently, the second test we did, we actually measured currents and voltages to climbers aloft. So what you have here is essentially my, my, my person. See, how do you get the cursor to go on this? There we go. That's a person right there. That's the resistance or impedance of a human body. So basically, we're measuring the current through the stem and the voltage that you'd experience. And I can tell you that, happily, we don't kill people because the impedance of this pathway is really, really high. So anyways, that gets me to Schuylerville. The third trip to Schuylerville started looking at uh, a different problem. Many of the people on that site and many of the talks you've heard today deal with whole tree failures, either uprooting or major stem failures. And um, I'm happy that everyone is working on that because what I'm interested in is branch failures. Basically, um, it's the failure of these smaller branches that cause outages. The big ones, big branches and whole trees, cause damage to the infrastructure. Just the, the sheer force of the impact will break a conductor, break an arm, break a pole. I'm not interested in that. So I applied an engineering principle of reliability-centered maintenance, did a failure mode and effect analysis, and uh, came up with four different types of failure that might be interested. These are branch failures, um, and those are the conditions that might happen. It might temporarily deflect and recover. It may permanently deflect, and I'll talk about why. You've heard some of that this morning. Um, it may actually fracture and remain attached, or it may break and fall clear. And the implications for the power system vary depending on what it's hitting. So the project was funded by National Grid, NSTAR, which is the utility that serves Boston, uh, Lewis Tree Service, and the Tree Fund. And we came to Schuylerville, we being myself, Andreas, Philip, and Mike Neumheimer, who's not here, um, and, um, and did the work. But before we got on the site, I started with a literature review and ended up with 22 citations I felt were the particularly relevant to the issue of branch failure. Now, I'm, it took me an hour to present a much more detailed version of this at ISA last month. So I really am cutting things down, but I'm happy to give you the background on that project because we're going to really get to what I was doing this week in, near the end. I want to put two useful texts in front of you, though. This first one, Gordon, not being an engineer, I found particularly useful. If you want some summer reading, and we still have three weeks of summer left, you want some summer reading, get Gordon's book. It's only about that thick, it's a little paperback, and it's entertaining. It will give you a basis of structural engineering. If you want to work hard, <laughs> get Nicholas's book. It is very technical, there's plenty of formulas. Knock yourself out. <laughs> Okay, so the first part of the project was a literature review. Second part of the project is I put out a call to the utility arborist, said, give me all your photos of branch failures that actually cause interruptions. It wasn't as accessible as I was hoping. I'll tell you why. 
I got lots of photos, but they were of the big ugly failures. They weren't of individual small branches. So out of a couple hundred submissions, I only had about 42 I could use. And basically, we used some photo interpretation method scoring, 16 different, different attributes. Because what we're looking for are their criteria that you can apply that would give you some means of assessing risk. So we did that. Then we went out to the UAA with a survey. There are some 2,000 members. I don't remember what the total membership of UAA is, but I got an 8, about an 8% response rate. And really the purpose of that is all, it's all qualitative investigation so far. We'll get to the empirical and quantitative in a moment. Um, my really, what I was trying to do is tap into the experience of the practitioner. And I also wanted to think, get, a, get a baseline of what they perceive, saying in a different way, not what it is, but what they think it is, uh, so that I could understand the bias. Finally, we get to the statics method. This is basically a static load test. Uh, we'll be absolutely clear on this. This does not replicate wind. This is a unidirectional test. I think that there are probably reasons why it infers some integrity, branch integrity, that might be useful in wind, but we are not trying to, to model wind. What it involved is we placed a load line at an estimated center of gravity, and we measured the force being applied. We had two different means of, means of doing that. And we measured the deflection as a measure of just how much the branch deflected down using the load line in the measure, the tape measure. And we were able to progressively gather data. So you saw Phil uh, upside down in trees. So there's the load cell. So Phil likes to go upside down. So, so that's what the test involved. And we did that some 64 times on that site. And we were working with uh, those six species. Those are representative of the urban and utility forest that those two uh, eastern utilities uh, operate in. And you can see we're dealing with small branches. Um, and I was working with small branches all week, so it's not quite as exciting as the big poles, cert certainly. Now, before I get into some of the details of what we found, I think it's important just to remind ourselves a little bit about these branches, because you heard Greg uh, give a great ex explanation of allometry. I like that word. But um, I'm trying to simplify things. So and it, admittedly, it is a simplification to treat the branch as a cantilevered beam. But it's a useful construct. So if that's the case, the tissues on the upside are under tension, and the tissues on the underside are in compression. And as you load the branches, those forces increase. Um, if you think about the cross-sectional area, and we saw this um, with branch elasticity. Small diameter branches are extremely elastic, very hard to break. If you think about as the diameter increases, if you think about what's happening when those cells are either pulling in tension or compressing, the bigger the diameter, the farther those fibers have to go to get to the same amount of deflection. Within that structure, there's a neutral plane where things are not in compression or tension at all. And uh, that's important when you start to understand how the fracture, when you start to look at your, your broken branches, your fractures. And we can also say that the branch in its steady state is pre-stressed. 
we've heard it about it being a biologically optimized structure. And so it's successfully holding itself up. But it's a complicated material. So I ran into the same issue when I worked with the double E's, electrical engineers. When I was doing my electrical fault work, we finally decided a branch is like a cable because it's layers of tissue that have different dielectric strengths. Well, the same thing happens here. The material properties in the layers in the branch vary. And it's clear that um, the smaller branches have a larger percentage of material that's weaker, less flexible. It varies with, with size. And also, it's not an engineered material. It's irregular in form. One more construct, then we'll show some data. So uh, you heard, I think, Andreas mentioned this morning. You saw it in some of Phil's uh, data as well. There's an initial period of elasticity where if you apply force, you remove the force, it returns to normal. Then you overwhelm that to a point of yield, and you're in a period of plasticity, plasticity uh, where the deflection occurs, the, compression, uh, the forces of compression overwhelm the tissues on the underside, they collapse, the branch does not recover when, when a force is removed. And then you have an ultimate failure. And I used those definitions, particularly the failure in compression when we were calculating safety factors. So um, I said I was going to go to the data, but this, I think this is my last slide before the data. The most important thing on this slide, and I think um, one, of the most, the, one of the nuggets I got from uh, Gordon's book appears on page 69. That says it all to me. That's the phrase that I have to figure out how to quantify. That's what we have to get the practicing arborist to be able to understand and apply. Because it really comes down to understanding that the branch isn't regular, it is irregular. And the, the property that's most important is elasticity. Okay, so now we have some observations. So we break the branches, what does it tell us? Well, in this case, it's a classic example of a classic failure if I can find this cursor again. Here we go. So you have these bands or belts that show where the compression has occurred, so the tissues have been crushed. Ultimately, you have torn tissue in tension, and you have this neutral plane, typically through the center of the branch. So, okay, we think that model is a good description. Oh, now I can't use that mouse. Use this one. Okay, so I did some dissections of the failed portions. Now, this work was done in late October. I shipped them back to Washington, didn't get to them for a couple weeks, and coincidentally and happily, a blue stain fungi got involved, and it made it very much easier to see what's going on. So in this area, this, you can see this darker area. Those cells were crushed. This is the lower surface of the branch. Up in here you can see this wedge. It's a little harder to see in an image, but if you're looking at that, this would be very fibrous and rough. Um, and so that is where the tension uh, was high and we were tearing fibers. And you'd have your neutral axis in through here. In, uh, observationally and quantitatively, we can see the same thing. So what happens is you have this linear relationship 
Uh, Andreas spoke of this earlier as well. As you applied force, you get deflection, and it's a linear relationship. At some point, the force overwhelms the, the resistance of the cells. They fail in compression. Additional force doesn't cause a lot of, uh, you don't get a lot more, uh, you get a lot more bending you don't, with additional force. In other words, it, it fails, but doesn't break loose, and ultimately it does, does break loose. Now, the interesting thing about this, the question that was answered yes, asked yesterday, is a 1% um, uh, pull test adequate? And I heard Phil say a quarter. Well, I think it, in my case, the question is also, is, is a lightly loaded branch to deflection um, important to what I'm ultimately going to tell you about? Is this reduction pruning? I, I think so, because as long as I'm operating in this period of elasticity and I get this kind of R squared, I should be able to operate pretty much anywhere in there and look at the, the uh, effect of a reducing cut on uh, branch, the forces, uh, the moments in the area where they fail. Now, another thing that came from all this work surprised me, um, but it's pretty clear and it shows up in other people's work as well, is that these branches are not failing at the unions. In fact, I was trying to describe this as a critical fracture zone or zone of failure. What we see is they fail out a ways. They fail out, and uh, Mike Ellison gave a paper at ISA last year where he was using a ratio of about two times the diameter out the branch length to describe where the failure was. I didn't use that. I kind of think that's a useful metric because it's easy for an arborist to think in terms. But what I found is these failures are occurring uh, 5 to 20 centimeters out on the branch, at least the branches I was working with, which is really important because that's where then the forces of stress would be highest, and that's where I want to measure things. So we're going to get a little bit away now from the, all of that data and that report just to say that those are the, the potential criteria I was using in search of risk assessment. We found there was variation in species. We did find, like, just like Greg said, that I call it taper, but slenderness. Uh, roundness turned out not to be. The, round, the amount of roundness or ovaling, particularly good uh, indicator. Orientation is vertical. We had four different positions. Um, I think you're going to hear from Jake later. But we found that the upright branches were more prone to failure. Uh, form is whether they're straight or if they're bowed or curved down. Location of the crown turned out to be quite important. Um, I think potentially because it also infers orientation, but branches in the upper crown tended to be more likely to fail, more easily to fail. Competitive position was surprising. I used forestry definitions of, of dominant, co-dominant, intermediate, and suppressed. And um, the dominant ones were more likely to fail than the, the, uh, the suppressed stems, which surprised me. Um, and that observable f defect turned out to be a lousy indicator. I'll say that again. <laughs> Observable defect turned out to be an, uh, not a very good indicator. We thought we could predict where the failures were going to occur. They wouldn't occur there typically. That goes back to that statement on elasticity and these trees being optimizing organisms. So you have a defect and the tree to response. So if the injury, this is a supposition on my part, if the, the change is relatively recent to the stress, it probably is a good indicator. If the defect has been there for a long time, then the, then the tree has 
put compensatory growth back on and return to a uniform elasticity. It's biologically optimizing. Okay, so um, what I was really working on was ice and snow loading. I didn't have a way to create that. I didn't have a snow machine. Uh, Dr. Gilman has his wind machine. I don't have, I, I'm actually thinking of a snow machine. I'll tell you about it in a minute. Um, but it snowed. We had a heavy, wet snow. So we took the opportunity to make direct observations. Turned out to be a wonderful opportunity. So we selected some branches and weighed the snow accumulation. And you can see the kinds of weights that we were getting there. So um, if you had a doubling of weight or three times the weight of snow to the branch, that's, that, if, if you relate that back to a safety factor, and now trees are said to have a safety factor of two to, two to one to four to one, steady state load to overload before they fail. Branches are known to be higher. That gives you an idea of the kind of loads these trees were seeing. Um, and there's no question. This was anecdotal. It was serendipitous that the snow occurred. Um, we lost snow when we were weighing it, but it put us on to some ideas. Another way to do it was we actually took some branches that had been loaded. Now, these branches had leaves on them. Um, and we, we estimated our center of gravity. We have actually set up as if we were going to do a pull test. And then we pruned the branches with the snow load. And then two days later, went back and put a force on those branches to replicate that load. And you can see that with a 15% reduction, I was getting a dramatic reduction in those forces in the fracture zone. If this is true, that's really important. We also looked at reduction in the whole tree. We see the same kinds of things um, in terms of 15% crown reduction. And look at the reduction is measured in the, the strain gauges on the stem. So that's measuring the, what's going on in the fibers. They're either in tension or compression. Dramatic reductions for relatively modest reduction prunings. So uh, the big report that I wrote and presented at ISA had eight recommendations. Number eight was let's do something about branch reduction pruning. It has too much potential in terms of risk management tool for ice and snow to not do something here. So effectively, that's what I've been working on this week. I was trying to develop a method, an experimental protocol. Now, if those of you that visited the site could see that I had a lot of low-tech gear. What I was trying to do was come up with different ways to measure and acquire data that then could be used. Um, I had a great, a great time on the site watching the teams with the sophisticated gear. You saw Phil dangling from uh, his saddle reading that analog dynamometer. I know that the next time I do an experiment like this, I'm going to get myself a load cell. There's no doubt about it. Um, but, but whether I measured it analog or I could measure it more precisely, I think we now understand what I need to measure to run an experiment with large numbers of replications. So if that's true, what I got to, to this week was there's two stumbling blocks. How do you describe dose in terms that people can relate to? And how do I measure the amount of material I remove? What are the data that I need to acquire on the material being removed? So I kind of got ahead of myself here. 
We have two ways to work on this if that critical fracture zone is true, and I believe it's likely to be true. Um, we can mathematically measure the moment using physics. We can also make direct observation using instrumentation, and I was doing both on the site. And thank you, Andreas, for loaning me those strain gauges. <laughs> okay. So this question of dose is kind of problematic. I don't have an answer yet. It's, it, you could really simplify it, or it could be really complicated. One way to say reduction is simply reduction in length. Another way to say reduction is reduction in mass or weight. Well, that's important, isn't it? Another way to say is, what about this, this one-dimensional planimetric area? And that, that's a reasonably logical a simplification. Because if you think about deposition and accumulation of snow, then this horizontal surface that presents itself to the snow is maybe a good thing. You can also visualize a three-dimensional volume of space that that branch might occupy. And finally, um, Ed gave me a, a notion through his pipe theory of saying that potentially the cross-sectional area in that fracture zone or that union point as it relates to where you place your pruning cut, may be another way to express uh, reduction. So I've got to figure that one out. And being a very practical and applied guy, I need to figure it out in a way that is intuitive for the uh, practitioner. Another problem I had, I've got to work out, is experimentally, if we make the cuts, how do we make the cuts? It's a pretty interesting conversation. So to the utility arborist, fewer cuts is better. So the first couple of uh, replications we tried, we said, let's make a 10 or 20% reduction. But you can only make one cut, and you have to make it at a node. And um, we, got, we got material, and it sometimes was regular or not. And then I showed Andreas, because we were talking about, OK, how do we measure what are we going to measure so we can calculate the CG, the, local, the location of the center of gravity of that removed piece as it relates to the fracture zone? And he said, well, in Europe, we, wouldn't, we would make more cuts. We would end up with more shaping. So I've got to decide if it's the one cut or the multiple cuts. And um, I thought, well, I'm just going to go to the best management practices. But I, Greg uh, kind of got to this. I think those best management practices on reduction really have more to do with managing the growth response in the form than it has to do with the structural integrity of the branch. So it may not be a particularly useful indicator. And that may also follow on to the comment that Phil made. Perhaps we should base the BMPs on some of this kind of work. One possibility of assessing, I would say I went to the white pine first because it's a very simple form. And so, um, Actually, my friends, the Davy AV guys, we were talking over lunch, I think it was. So let's lay this out. That's the white tent wall. I took it down one afternoon, laid it out, and that happens to be one of the reductions. So let's see if I can. 10%, 20 30 40 and this is the residual branch. Now, interesting, uh, listening to Greg, it may be that there's actually two functions in this branch. And this whole piece is the structural piece, and the, and the reduction might be this part. If you think about snow capture and you think about the forces being applied out here, they're probably more important. The question is, how do I characterize these? 
So I'm going to work that out. Um, I know that based on the instrumentations, we can come up with two ways to measure stress and the change in stress associated with reduction pruning. That was validated. I know how to do it. Um, I believe I can work in that elastic range and under fairly light loads because I'm in that linear relationship that I showed you in that graph. And I think it's probably going to be possible to design an economically efficient experiment. And that's where I depart from my academic colleagues. I have to make it pay. <laughs> and, um, and my methods may be a little cruder, but I'll make up for it by sample size. And think about what I said about the utility forester versus the arborist. We're working with populations. So cruder with bigger samples probably fits my particular niche pretty well. Next steps, we'll test the data, make sure we've acquired the data that will allow us to calculate those moments in the fracture zone. I've got to formalize all the protocols and select the right equipment, eliminating the analog gear and going to uh, more sophisticated gear. I've got to come up with a way to um, consider loads. See, these, lo these branches so far, I haven't loaded them. Um, so I've got an idea around ICE. The, uh, the IEEE and the NESC have design standards for utility engineers to use for ice loading on conductors. So if I can describe a branch as a series of, of cylinders, like a conductor, I can use those formulas to calculate how much ice would be a deposition of ice and how thick the ice would be, and then I can get weights of ice potential on the branches. And the reduction of that unloaded branch is one thing, but a loaded branch is even more important. On snow, I got two approaches. I did look at the internet. I can make a snow machine with some PVC tubes and a garden hose and a compressed air. I also live in, in Seattle or Redmond. And uh, from my house to the top of Snoqualmie Pass is less than an hour. And all winter long, there'll be wet snow at some elevation. So I could actually go in the field and work with heavy wet snow loads. So I've got to figure that out. And then I've got to figure out how it's going to get paid for and then I'm going to do it. So, I am done. Thank you. That concludes John Goodfellow's presentation on branch failure risk mitigation and the determination of the critical fracture zone in branches. If you would like to learn more about tree risk and loading, you can find additional materials at the ISA website, including Trees and Risk, the proceedings from the Charlotte, North Carolina conference and other materials. If you'd like to receive CEUs for today's talk, the code for this lecture is SA6000. Again, SA6000. If you have other topics that you would like us to provide podcasts for, please feel free to contact Luana Vargas, the producer of this series at the ISA office in Champaign, Illinois, or me, Tom Smiley, at the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory. Remember to subscribe to this podcast series through the ISA website or iTunes. And join us next time for another episode of Science of Arboriculture. Trees in every country. Trees, you know we can. Work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge. Traditional skills and modern techniques Whatever language you speak You have a world to offer Every day Climb with the ISA 